connecting with your life's purpose. We've talked about it before, and we'll talk about it again on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog to make it the show? Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV Podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. Uh, we're going to have another episode of Meet the Author today, and a uh, very unusual uh, author among the couple of hundred that we've interviewed here over the past year and a half. Uh, my guest today actually writes for adults and children, two different sets of books, not the same books for adults and children. Uh, but that's an unusual thing in the world of authorship. We don't see a lot of either writing for one or the other. Uh, so it's very unusual to have somebody who writes for both. So it should be a very interesting conversation. We're uh, ending out a very long week. I'm a little bit exhausted <laughs> still. I know I, I sound like a broken record saying that, but I'm uh, I'm doing a lot of podcast that you don't see i'm managing a couple producing a couple more uh stuff that you know is not necessarily in the entertainment venue it's all in the business and finance stuff uh which is not my strong point uh oddly enough but i'm producing podcasts for several financial experts and maybe took on more than i could chew uh, we'll see about that. But as, as it is right now, I'm really looking forward to getting out and enjoying the summer and summer is finally hit here in New York, Long Island, where I am, uh, 80 degree weather, sun's out, no clouds in the sky, gigs coming this weekend, gigs coming next weekend, gigs every weekend through the summer. Uh, and finally looking like, uh, life is returning to normal in baby steps just a little bit. Very happy and excited about that. So before we move on with today's program, I need to quickly talk about our sponsors. Who's our sponsor today, Johnny? Uh, well, today's show is, uh, brought to you by FunWise Capital. You know all about FunWise Capital, folks. Their business lender matching platform that gets you the best rates guaranteed. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and then they'll affect your credit to see how much you can get. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You've heard me say this before. You'll hear me say it again. I did say start. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. The strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months, unsecured term loans, loan loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans, and very complicated long copy. Uh, they work with real estate, st- uh, startups, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started with them, it's really simple. You just go to apply, apply, A-P-P-L-Y dot funwise dot com slash mind dog. And I do appreciate you uh, patronizing our sponsors. The links are all in the description. Uh, you need money for your business. Go to FunWise Capital, folks, and tell them the Mind Dog Center, and they'll say, what? Um, <laughs> but use the link in the description, and you will definitely uh, find them easy to work with. You'll get quick answers on the credit that you need. PPE, PPP loan, PPE? What is it? PPP. Payroll Protection Plan. 
plan, I think. <laughs> anyway, a little bit slow, a little bit off the money today, folks. Terry Shepard writes detective fiction for both adults and kids, as I mentioned. After too many years in corporate life, just like me, Terry Shepard decided to reinvent himself to study the craft of detection detective fiction. He created his protagonist, Jessica Ramirez, in December of 2018 and has been putting her in peril ever since. Terry also writes for kids. He writes books about the Waterford Waterford detectives so his grandson can always have a starring role. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Terry Shepard to the Mind <laughs> TV. I got to ask you, Matt, is that a Gretsch? Is that a Brian Setzer Gretsch behind you there, behind your right hand? Uh, no, it's a, it looks like a Gretsch. It's actually a Carlo Rebelli. You know Carlo Rebelli? Sure. Yeah, that's yeah. even better. That's great. <laughs> it is? <laughs> I don't know about it. Even better. It's it's an okay guitar. It's really, um, it's limiting uh, because, you know, it doesn't have the cutaway up on the neck. So basically ah. you get you get to play to the 12th fret. If you, if you have really slim, long fingers, you can play <laughs> beyond that, but I don't. So I take it you're a player. <laughs> Well, and I wanted to ask you, how are the 45s? I mean, how's, how are, how's the gig list look for the summer? Oh, it, it's looking pretty good, actually. Um, I'm, I'm excited. Next week, we're kicking off the real uh, summer Memorial Day weekend. But we've been playing gigs all, all along, uh, going on back and forth between full band and acoustic duos. Uh, but yeah. it's been fun. It's been very fun. Well, if, if you guys have not checked out the YouTube channel for these guys their their music is fantastic <laughs> thanks we're not here to plug me <laughs> no, listen I, there was a time in my life when i was a touring musician i was a rock drummer for a while and uh picked up everything everything that you didn't have to blow along the, yeah. along the way so i played bass i played six and twelve and uh and i know what it's like to um to show up at a gig where where everybody's drunk and nobody's paying attention and you still have to do your best work. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately for us, we get a lot of uh, <laughs> when we get the drunk crowds. They are paying attention, but they are, they also uh, have ten, tended to. I just talked about this the other day. Somebody posted a picture of a, a gig we played in 1987 where we started a riot, and 84 people either went to jail or to oh the hospital. God. So. <laughs> a lot like of success to me. <laughs> yeah. A lot of bikers come to see us. So. That's well. Listen, at least you know your audience, right? That's yeah. The, uh, that, that that's been my challenge as as a writer. Is I I originally came into this thing thinking that I would write detective fiction, and I what I really wanted to do was create an ensemble cast that fit truly fit the diversity of the world around us. So I made Jessica a Latina cop. She's based on a real life friend of mine who's been a twenty five year Latina cop at a cop shop and struggled with every possible kind of humiliation and prejudice wrapped her around a, um, uh, her sidekick is LGBT. The guy who plays the medical examiner in the book is on the um, autism spectrum. So I mean, I, the goal was to try and create an ensemble cast of characters who are all heroes that people could identify with the win for me is if you read my book and you say, Hey, maybe I can be that hero too. And right. that, that was the goal. But then somewhere along the way, this pandemic came around and uh, my grandkids started asking questions about COVID-19. So that's where this whole mystery bug phenomenon started. I wrote a, um, in essence, a Dr. Seuss book about masking, social distancing and vaccines. 
and made it. I made one copy for them, and it turned out one was a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, and there it is. That's the accurate. What you're looking at there is the Spanish edition. Like all of my stuff, it's available in both English and Spanish. And um, Mystery Bug actually has a video. You can actually see an animated version of that. And uh, Chasing Vega is also available as an audiobook. So I'm trying to hit all the platforms, Matt. I even try to, I'm, I'm, I'm testing a graphic novel idea for Jessica. Wow. Uh, because she's got a, um, she's got a uh, Twitter handle. I created a Twitter handle for her before she even had a book. She's got more Twitter friends than I do. And for some reason, the people in the UK are in love with her. And uh, so much so that the second story, which is coming out in just a couple of weeks, Chasing the Captain, 90% of that story actually takes place in London. So I'm trying to follow where the action is and 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 see what happens. I, it's, it's, it's a weird kind of existence, but I'm having a blast doing it. Well, I'm glad to hear you're having a blast doing it. You're all over the map, as you just kind of uh, detailed there. And I appreciate that uh, in in a very big way, and it resonates with me. Part of the reason I started this program uh, was uh, I had an incident where a guy who was retiring, oh, he put an ad on, on Craigslist. He was selling an amplifier, and I went to, I went to meet him. And uh, he asked me what I did, and, and uh, I told him I play in a band. And he, he said, oh, you're living the dream. And he, I, I looked at him and I laughed. I said, that's serious. You don't know. I'm not a rock star. I'm not rich and famous. And he said, you don't understand. I'm retiring. I'm 69 years old. I always wanted to play in a band. I never did. I'm selling you my amplifier. That means I'm never going to. Mm. Uh, and so I started thinking, you know, too many people don't really ever do what they want to do. And I, I spent my most of my life in corporate America or, or in many different careers that were not exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And I, so I wanted to encourage people to do it before, you know, this is not a dress rehearsal. You only get one chance at life unless you believe in reincarnation. And even so, even if you do believe in reincarnation, you're not going to be the same person if you come back. So this is your one chance to do what you really want to do. Go out and do it. So I appreciate the fact that, that you've done it. Uh, was being a writer always in your plans from, from your youth? Was it something you always wanted to do? And, and why did you wait until uh, leaving the corporate world, basically retirement, to take it on, if, if so? I never thought I would be a writer. I, mean, I, I was good enough in English to be in advanced placement English throughout my high school career. And, you know, writing sort of saved my my life as a skill set that came in handy even in, even when I was doing showbiz stuff, when I did, um, I was, I paid my way through college as a disc jockey. So I wrote a lot of uh, copy for commercials and, you know, did a lot of research on the rock acts that I was talking about on the shows and stuff. And I wrote it all down because I didn't ad lib very well back then. And so I knew how to do it. And uh, even in the corporate world, I was writing motivational stuff for my teams every Sunday night to try and fire them up. And I had an admin that said, Hey, there's a book in this. You should be saving these things because you might be able to, you know, do a nonfiction thing. And that's how I actually got started writing was as a side hustle, not expecting to make any money, just expecting to put it out there. Um, and that was, you know, I think Matt, the, the, the deeper thing for me was trying to figure out purpose, right? I mean, for, I think, Purpose comes first. You got to figure out why you're here. 
And I was raised to believe that we are put on this earth to make things better for people around us. And so everything that I did, even in the corporate world, I was all about trying to help people, especially the disenfranchised that worked on my teams, have opportunity, find their potential. There was nothing that made me happier than seeing somebody who never thought that I would have loved to see that 69-year-old guy come and jam with your band. That would have made me totally happy. Yeah. So when I retired from the corporate world, I was really at loose ends. I felt like my my life was kind of over because I wasn't able to do that anymore. So I talked to my shrink and she said, you spent your whole life taking care of everybody else and making money for your family. You don't need to do that anymore. What is your passion? The question I always ask eventually, I bet you ask this too, is if you could work for love and not for money, what would you do? And I asked that, I've asked that thousands of times, but I never considered that myself. So when she asked me, I had no idea. So my wife and I decided we would try this writing thing for 12 months and see what happened. And um, I love it. It's great. It's just a whole new world. It's so much good for you. Good for you. I'm glad that you connected with your purpose. I talk about purpose all the time on this program. And my, my take on this is you see a lot of people in the world walking around the world today who are miserable. They're miserable because they're in my opinion, why they're miserable is they're doing something that doesn't connect with their purpose in any way. They don't realize that. And so they take a job to make, to make a living, but that job and, and that living has nothing to do with any greater purpose, any reason they were put on earth. And so discovering that, asking yourself those key questions, like if you could do anything, uh, you know, work for, for love, not for money, what would you be doing? Uh, a lot of people don't ask that that question of themselves. And that's why we see so many people just walking around angry, resentful and cold and bitter um, because they're going to a cubicle that wasn't part of their plan and they <laughs> yeah. don't even remember what their plan was. Right. right. That, I, I think that we get it backwards, right? right? We're taught from the beginning of life. It's about accumulating things. Everything we see on TV is about what's wrong with us and how spending money can help us get there. And so we think we're going to earn a lot of money and that money is the end goal. But the reality is it's flipped around. It's, it's purpose first and then finding a way to inject passion into your purpose. If you can make those two connections, then the money follows. So Passion is built on purpose and the money you, you will get enough money to be able to have the kind of life that you want to have if you are following your purpose in a passionate way. And that right. kind of been my, my mantra my entire life, but um, I, I never really had a chance to explore. <laughs> well, it wasn't my mantra my entire life, but it's something I live by now. And because uh, so, you mentioned earlier you were you were a DJ. That was uh, what I believed was my purpose. I was in radio 35 years ago, right. uh, yeah. and I got kind of... Uh, I got banned for using the F word. We went when, on a station that didn't have a seven-second seven delay working. Oh, my uh, God. And, uh, you know, a couple of F-bombs slipped out and then a couple more and then a couple more. And by the time uh, I knew it, my radio career was over. And and I just accepted that and moved on. But I always wanted to get back in radio. And then uh, things happened where in, a, in the corporate world that, you know, uh, the company I was working for was really struggling. And I decided to leave there and I thought, well, what am I going to do now? I always love radio. I can, I'm not going to go around, you know, sending resumes to radio stations all over the country, but this yeah. is as close, as close as I can come. So <laughs> I think this is, this is better. This is better. I mean, radio isn't what it was 35 years ago. I mean, it's no. just, 
It's not at all. It's all voice tracked. It's all automated. And, and I love what the thing I love about your podcast is that you really do bring in fascinating people who make the rest of us think about the very fundamental things about life, about what really is important to us. And right. hearing some of these stories of the, of the folks that you've talked to over the course of your career here, I think I think you've changed some lives around, along the way, my friend. So well, I, I appreciate yeah. that. I, I hope so. I hope we've at least kind of opened some windows for some people. You know, you never know because the feedback I get is is very shallow a lot of times. Great show, yeah. you know what? But you know, you don't get a, a lot of deep stuff. Do have one who somebody who was uh, really touched my heart recently. Somebody who's dealing with addiction and, and was uh, really moved by a show. I did with my friend uh, Morgan Roberts not too long mm-hmm. ago about yep. about her situation, losing a lot of young friends to heroin addiction and all that. And so, yeah, it's good to know that we're touching some some lives out there, but you never know. You never oh, yeah. know. And we, we <laughs> used to have a saying in the radio business that you never trust the feedback you get on the hit lines. The people right. that the people that have time to call a radio station are not the ones that are the, necessarily the people you want to totally engage with, but you do have those moments of illumination and they can happen anywhere, anytime. One of the things that I love to do is I, when I'm driving through the drive through at Burger King, I always try and find something to compliment that poor minimum wage person who's taken my order with. Oh. And a lot of times it's the only good thing they've heard that day. You know, they get a bad rap, but uh, locally, because I stop in for a coffee on my way to gigs a lot of times at the local McDonald's here, and there is a kid who's got an outstanding attitude, and I always, I always enjoy seeing him, and he treats me like, like, like I, I'm his grandfather or or. or, or an older version of his father, maybe. Uh, but he always treats me with great respect and, like, always happy to see me. Great person. And I, I, I think a lot of times those fast food workers get a really, really bad rap. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> glad, I'm glad you said that because I, I feel the same way, you know, if they, especially if they're uh, if they're people-focused and, you, and they're paying attention to you, it's nice to give them a compliment every once in a while and, and help well, lift them up. I think I think the reality is is that every one of us out there is carrying a burden that other people can't see. And oh, what yeah. we do is get up in the morning, we put on this fake superhero outfit and hope that nobody finds us out during the course of the day for the authentic, flawed person that we really are. And that was kind of an interesting study for me as I was writing the, the Chasing Vega book was how to get inside the heads of these people because these people come with flaws and um, some pretty significant ones in some case, and to see how they wrestle with that and how they find a way to prevail and, you know, accept themselves for who they they are is, is part of the fascination for me. And I found that out in the course of my research. I spent a lot of time riding with cops and a lot of time in morgues and with medical examiners and, and, you know, my story takes place in the Grand Canyon. So I spent time with the Rangers there figuring out how they fish people out of the Colorado river. Cause that's, that's how my bad girl kills her. Her, Wow. She throws them in from the, from the rim of the grand Canyon, man, you're a deep. Well, <laughs> well, well uh, I mean, fascinating. It's just the, the, to talk to these people, they all were uh, the, the thing that I really realized with this, Matt is that we're all in this together. I mean, we may come from different places and have different challenges, but we're all facing the same thing. We're trying to figure it out. We're trying to figure what happiness means to us. And we're trying to figure out how we can make a contribution that will go beyond our own lifetime line. 
Right. And once you understand that, then it's very easy to make friends. Well, I, I appreciate your outlook on, on things. I think a lot of people, um, for, and I'm not casting aspersions or anybody or judgment in any way, but I think a lot of people get caught up and, and, and they lose sight of all that kind of stuff about, about, you know, trying to find meaning in anything. And they just get numb to all the noise and stuff that goes on in the world. And so every day is just about getting through that day, just about getting through that day for so many people. It's a sad world that we live in when you, if you look at it in that way. But I, when I meet somebody like you, I'm very inspired. (laughs) And now uh, I mentioned it's, very unusual for somebody to write for adults and and for children, but it's also really unusual for somebody to have a, a main protagonist that is a different gender than themselves, and or and not and based on somebody else rather than the best uh, imagined version of themselves. You know, a, a, the the perfect version of themselves is usually what the protagonist ends up being for any author. So this. Jessica Ramirez, she's based on a cop that you knew. It, it was just in South Florida, or is it uh, in near the Grand Canyon? What, what's that Actually, on? it was somebody I knew in Michigan, and Michigan. Um, yeah, and we we became friends. And and part of the reason that I ended up writing Vega the way that I did was she did not have a lot of happy endings to her stories. You know, when when back in the day, I mean, the the cop shop was the last bastion of male chauvinism. And they did not want her to succeed. And a lot of bad stuff happened to her along the way, but she just would not be denied her career. And she cared so much about not only being a good cop, but also being a great representative of the Latino community and a you know connector there that she just wasn't going to stop. So what we did as she was telling me her stories, I said, well, why don't I write different endings? Let's have a couple of them where you actually win, you know? <laughs> and so there's, there's, there's one in particular in the middle of the book where they describe an undercover situation that Jessica's in that is an exact replica of something that happened to Tracy, my, my, uh, the, the one on whom I base Jessica. The only thing is that in her story, the end there wasn't an ending where there was any kind of uh retribution or revenge or where the bad guys got theirs and in this one i was able to write the most colorful fun and just wonderfully horrific bad things happening to these other cops that were trying to make bad things happen to her and uh, you know when i read it to her she goes she said i wish that they all ended up that way but the deeper goal this is the thing that kind of emerged matt and it wasn't what i expected when i started writing was that um I thought originally I was going to write stuff that was going to be on Netflix. That was thinking that was what success would be Netflix or the big screen. But as I was writing Vega and as I was doing the research, what I determined I really wanted the outcome to be was I wanted to create a story that would inspire people who, you know, didn't look like me to want to grow up to do stuff like these people did. So our goal before the pandemic was that Tracy and I were going to hit the road and we were going to go to towns that had strong Latino communities and do our presentation there. And the book was going to be secondary. The goal was to try and encourage young women to be excited about law enforcement. And we got great response from the, from the cop shops about that promotion notion. So I, the way we were going to do it was I had a, I made a movie trailer of the book. I was going to play that. I was going to sit on the stage with Tracy and I was, this is the real Jessica Ramirez. Tracy, tell them about your life. And then at the end, my wife would be sitting out in the hallway and if somebody wanted to buy a book, they could. 
but what I found out, it's this, it's this same purpose thing, Matt. You know, it's like if you go into something, and, and Keith Ferrazzi talks about this. I don't know if you've ever read the book, I've ne- Never Eat Alone. It's kind of the new Dale Carnegie thing. But right. yeah, he says, you got to give without the expectation of return. So when I'm writing, I'm, try- I'm really trying to write for the people that will read it. So when they're done reading it, they'll say, they've thought about, they have a new outlook on something, or maybe it's something that they want to try, or it gives them some sort of message beyond the popcorn. Right. And I have had a couple of those moments where I've had readers write to me and say, you got it right. You told my story. Um, And especially the interesting thing for me is the, the autism connection because I based my medical examiner on a, on a guy that I know who's my son of my best friend who has Asperger's and um, he is the one that everybody loves. He's the smartest guy there. He, uh, he, the communication thing, the social thing is his challenge. But when I went inside his head and said, you know, watched how things were going on in there inside that head is all of the intellect, all of the love, all of the caring that you would normally see in somebody who didn't have this kind of weird reconnection of the wiring that expresses that. And to hear several people have said to me, I haven't told anybody this before, but I'm on the spectrum and you described me to a T. I love it when I hear that because they say it with a smile because here is this guy who is a rock star in the story that they can look up to and they can say, maybe I can grow up to be that person. So if I hear that feedback, I know I've succeeded. I would tell anybody who, who is diagnosed with the Asperger's, uh, I mean, a real diagnosis, not a self-diagnosis because we have a lot of those out there, but anybody, I, I would recommend uh, starting a podcast. That's yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many podcast hosts the people that I've talked to have come out of the closet on that. Yeah. Uh, people are always surprised that I can actually talk to people because I, I am so socially awkward because of, you know, the way my brain is wired uh, in, in social situations. They, wow. You're a different person when you talk to people on the air and it's always, that's been the story of my whole life. So, well, that's in, in a way that's me. I mean, I'm, it doesn't look like it now, but I'm, <laughs> I'm an introvert. I got into radio because I wanted to learn how to behave like a extrovert i made this decision that being an introvert was not going to make me good enough or earn me the money i needed to be able to be able to perform and that's what taught you know we're we're walking the same path my friend it's it's you kind of get in the zone and are able to do it but when the mic goes off and the lights go off (laughs) i don't want to talk to anybody i I love another thing i love about writing is it's solitary It's, it's me and my computer so i'm a really really happy guy after a lifetime of, you know, standing on stages and trying to inspire people doing something that makes me happy. So, um, you also do a podcast of your own, don't you? Yeah. And you know, that was a very selfish motive for me because when I was starting out writing, um, my thing at the beginning was that I, I, I made a list of the, the four, my four writing heroes. And I wrote to each of them and I said, Hey, I'm going to be, I'm about to turn 65 and, um, I'm not stalking you but I want to be an author. What's one piece of advice you'd give me? And what I discovered immediately was that this community, especially in the thriller space is incredibly welcoming. The demand is so great and there's not enough supply of good stuff. So what I find when I talk to fans of one writer is that 
he or she can't give them enough in the course of a year to fill their desire. So they say, do you write like so-and-so, you know, and, and they're, they're looking for that. So all these people were incredibly welcoming. I ended up having this whole new group of friends that were all looking out for each other. And, um, we're all trying to get better in the craft. So I learned a ton about that. And I figured what's the fastest way to really get to talk to the most authors I could. And that would be to start a podcast about authors. Right. And I met uh, Pam Stack, who runs the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. At the time, she was having some eye surgery. She said, can you sub for me? And um, with the radio background and knowing how to do this stuff, I can, move, like you, I can move fast through it, get it done quickly. And, um, and so I got to pick whoever I wanted. So I wow. zeroed in, not on the stars that we would know, although I, I do know James Patterson and Dan Brown and those guys from conferences and hanging with them. I want the people who are where I am trying to figure it out, you know, that are in the beginning stages. I, want I would to- like a mix of both. I, <laughs> I, and uh, there's nothing wrong with getting some star power because uh, people will listen more. You, you can get people who, who are where you are and people who, are, you know, are dealing with the struggles of, of uh, building a, an authorship career. But there's nothing like having somebody who brings a whole ton of authority with them that people can look up to and say uh take that advice and really take it to heart because they've got the credentials or or the the name power name recognition that somebody can say well james patterson i gotta listen to what he says i mean he's got to know it all right so um he doesn't yeah, I, know it all i mean he's a very humble guy i right. mean he's he's in, incredibly nice and, and he surrounds himself that's the other thing is he surrounds himself with a great team a great support team who does a lot of the heavy lifting for him. And that's where I learned about making sure you got a really good editor. I have a story consultant that I hired that um, looks at all of my plot lines and characters and stuff like that. And it was, it's the same way in podcasting, right? I mean, when, when you started, I'm sure you probably listened to several dozen to try and figure out, where you were and what you wanted to do and actually when i started there were none uh but i gave it up for uh, 10 years in between when i first started the uh, the podcast it was 2006 2005 something wow like okay. yeah and so i i did a, a run at it and then i thought nobody's listening to this this that, this doesn't have any future this podcasting stuff it's <laughs> it's a it's a fad and and it's not even a good a strong fad it's going to go away pretty quickly and so i walked away from it and then 10 years later i said everybody's killing it with these podcasts i should have stuck it with that <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a way to get people to return your phone calls i mean the first podcast we i did was with a bunch of guys. We were my, my college buddies. We were sitting in a bar and had one of those conversations. I'm sure you've had with your friends where you say, if I could get anybody to come over and have dinner with me, who would I want to talk to? And we made that list. And so we figured, how would we get them to say yes? And a podcast was the answer because they all have something to promote. So right. you reach out to them. And, and back then, you know, when you, when, when you and I were first starting in this thing, all those years ago, it was new enough and it was an fascinating venue and these guys like Lawrence Lessig and Milo Radulovich and these amazing historical figures would all say yes. And, um, and I love that. The thing, the thing that I really like most is to try and dig into their psyche to figure out what it is that inspired them to do the things that they do. Like for example, Boyd Morrison's one of the bigger names. He's a a guy that writes, wrote with Clive Cussler. He, He writes really good stuff. He's the master of chase scenes. So I had him for 45 minutes and we just talked about that. But then you ask him, you kind of go down the, tell us about 
what really turns you on? What's the thing you enjoy most about writing? What's the thing you enjoy the, the least? And the, the answers that these people give just absolutely are fascinating because the things that motivate us to, in your case, you know, when I, when I think about what I loved about playing music, I love nothing better than to be sitting on a stage with a standing room only crowd out there driving a band with, you know, horns and guitars, the whole nine yards and everybody that moment, you know, that flow moment when everything's going right, the crowd's with you, you hit a tune that they recognize and they go berserk at the beginning. I mean, there's, unless you've lived that, you don't know what that flow moment feels like. And that happened me in writing when the muse is talking when the muse is talking to me and pointing me there's a scene i wrote in the cat chasing the captain where jessica has a close encounter with that huge ferris wheel in the london the london eye and when i was getting that when that thing was coming through me and onto the pages it just felt wonderful that i I was thinking if there is a heaven this is what it's like but then the hell is when she doesn't (laughs) talk when she shuts up (laughs) and then you gotta still like Doug Lyle says, DP Lyle says, you still got to crank it out anyway, even on the bad days, right? Yeah. You know, you got it right, man. You definitely have it right. I mean, everything you said there was was right on the money. Now, uh, so talk to me a little bit because it, I, you, I'm interested in the process as well. And so when, when, you, when you're writing a book, do you have – are you one of these people who has the idea – all you have the book written in your head before you get to even putting it to paper or computer or have LV write, or do does are you one of these people who follows the process? In other words, you start writing and then the book just comes out of wherever it comes out of. So it there's those two are the basic methodologies, but there are complex modalities attached to each one of them. But which one are you more like that? one who has the entire book thought out and knows exactly what I'm going to write before I start writing or the one who starts to write and then the book dictates uh, itself. (laughs) Well, for me, it begins with a scene. There's a scene that I always, that always comes to me and I'll write that scene. And I don't know where the scene's going to be in the book, like in captain chasing the captain, the scene I first wrote was a scene where Jessica is forced by her chief to go to Nashville and witness uh, an execution in the electric chair. And it originally, I wrote it as a kind of a twilight zone esque thing where there was, it wasn't just her witnessing it, but it was also going inside the head of the, the, the guy, the, the, the um, victim uh, because he was being put to death for a crime he didn't commit. And so that was the opener for that. And I've, tried to figure out, okay, now what, now, how do I, how do I wrap a story around this? And so then I started thinking about what are the things that my readers wanted, you know, I have all these people in the UK that wanted to come over there. So how do I get her to London? And um, everybody loves one of the challenges I had with Vega was that her sidekick in the initial drafts was much more interesting than Jessica was. Alexandra, the LGBT gal was absolutely hilarious, super smart, fearless, you know, wasn't afraid of anything and was full of all of these smart ass comments that were just great. And so as I'm working through that first draft, I'm saying to myself, I got to beef Jessica up a little bit more so she can take, take her on. And it just kind of, it kind of wraps together. Um, I have tried outlining when I get stuck. What I do is I go back and I start a screenplay. Because in my in my mind, I'm always imagining 
what would it be like if this thing were on the big screen? And how would I be able to hold the attention of an audience for 120 minutes? And I ended up doing that with Captain because I got stuck in the second act. After I wrote the London Eye sequence, I didn't know where to go from there. And um, I talked to a number of authors about it, and they said, go back and write more toward the beginning. So I didn't even know. The, the challenge in a pandemic world is that you can't create a, a thing that is big enough and bad enough because you always see that in thrillers, right? I mean, there's some world-shaking bad thing that's happening. Well, in pandemic, there's nothing that is as bad as reality. So I had to figure out, how can I come up with something that's even going to be worse than this? And I didn't. I, I couldn't. And my friends just said, don't worry about it. Write around it. You know, say that this is the, a blank placeholder right here, that they're trying to stop something and the clock's ticking. It doesn't matter what it is because it will reveal itself. And that's what happens, right? When you have a challenge like that, you put all of your research and everything into this blender of your subconscious and you forget about it. You start doing other stuff. And for me, my characters will start having conversations with me when I'm driving around and, you know, they'll argue with me saying, no, no, my, my character wouldn't do that. You need to rewrite that dialogue. And I just allow them to do that. It's, it's very much like John Lennon used to say about how the, the real good stuff came through him and not from him. And right. learning how to be open to them and not tying yourself to any one style. I'm sure the more that I write, the more I'll fall into some sort of style. But I'm still new enough with basically only about five or six books in two different genres um, that I'm still finding my way. So I just let it flow, Matt. And I pray that it works. Pray that somebody's going to want to read it when I'm done. Right. Well, that's great advice for somebody who is writing on purpose because it's their purpose but if it's somebody who is very young and, and thinking they're going to make a living from uh not really being put in a genre box it's more very difficult or the business business world loves to put you in the box so that everybody knows exactly what your product is going to be every time it comes out mcdonald's hamburgers are always the same that's the model they're going for whether you're a, a musician yep. a, a songwriter a, a a novelist, whatever. Um, so I, I think that's that it's that's great advice and it's terrible advice all in the same. <laughs> uh, the idea of you know not well, not being tied to the genre. Yeah, uh, but we're craftspeople, Matt. I mean that's yeah. and and we have to learn how to do it in every genre. We have to figure out what Amazon's keywords are that are selling. We have to learn how to be able to write in that space, and then ultimately we you know. At some point in your career, you're going to be able to do exactly what you want. But if you are learning the craft and you want to make money, what you do is you learn how to figure out what the hot genres are. You find a way in there. If you have to create a separate pen name to try it out, try it out. And you come up with a routine about you understand how, you know, Lee Goldberg is one of my heroes. I, 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 he's done, uh, he did Monk. He did, um, uh, Spencer for Hire. He's done a lot of TVs. He writes, his, his writing is just fantastic. And I follow his plot layout. You know, I follow it religiously because he can get from the beginning to the end. But I didn't know that. You know, when I started writing Vega, I didn't know any of that. And I got into my third draft before I got to know Lee. And then I started all over again. So that's what it is, is not, you know, never really giving up as you run into these obstacles and keep going until you find whatever that sweet spot is. And along the way, you're going to have to, you know, we all serve somebody and the, and the, and the, Money comes from someplace. So as you're learning the craft, don't be afraid to try something that's way outside of your comfort zone. I mean, at the beginning, 
I was looking at Amazon keywords every day because there's like two bubbles out there. And it's this way in everything, right? There's the supply bubble and the demand bubble. And I want something where there's a huge demand. I don't want to be writing in Harry Potter because there's a zillion Harry Potter fan fiction things out there. I want to find that thing that's got, and that was the interesting thing about, um, about uh, mystery bug was that in Spanish, there's not a lot of books in Spanish about that kind of kid stuff. Wow. So mine was the only, so I was, I was in the hot 100 and Amazon for three weeks because there was nobody else there, <laughs> you know? So yeah, big, big that's part of it. <laughs> yeah. In, a, in an empty pond. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned screenwriting and now you just mentioned some television shows and stuff like that, because um, earlier in the, in the interview, you, you, you were, uh, open and honest about something without even being asked about it. You said uh, when you're talking about you, you started writing this thinking about Netflix. When I ask authors, and I'm wondering if this is your your experience too. When I ask authors, you know, would you like to see your stuff be made into a television series or t- a film? I get the oh, don't no, no, don't be silly. I'm happy writing books. Uh, I think every author <laughs> wants. You know, if they're going to be honest, would love to see their work either on the big screen or the small screen in in some way. Uh, But then you mentioned screenwriting. And I always say the world of filmmaking and television has changed so much. When I was growing up, you growing up, a lot of movies were being made out of books. Godfather, Jaws, you name it. The Exorcist. I mean, go down the line. Big big name novels first. Then the film came. Now the film industry has gotten to the point where they're lazy. They don't want to. They don't want to adapt a book. They want you to deliver a well-written screenplay to them, or we're just going to remake uh, King Kong versus Godzilla again. You know, it's that. It's just that. So I always I recommend to authors. You know, if you really want to see that, make it easy for them. Put it into screenplay form and, and deliver them a screenplay. You're more much more likely to get some traction on on that than than if you give them a book because that that has to do that's work for them. Well, in in a book, just a platform. I mean, the real value proposition that you bring to the world of creativity is your characters, right? So when you talk to Bob Iger about why he bought Marvel, about why he bought Lucasfilm, he didn't buy the film library. He bought those characters. And the way you're seeing Disney work that, I mean, they're, they're the absolute best in the world in that space. My granddaughter loves Frozen. So we have every possible Elsa doll, toy, you name it. And they, and they figured out a way to put it on every platform. So part of what I think about as I think about Jessica, is I think about where can I deploy her? And that's why we did the, we did the Twitter handle for her because I wanted her to be out there interacting with her readers and developing a relationship from them and learning from them what kind of things they wanted to know about her. So I could put those in her stories. But then, you know, when we got the book done, I was thinking, okay, so what's another market that I'm missing And that's where the graphic novel stuff came in. And I learned in that exploration that that's a whole different dimension, a whole different culture. And and there are, in the graphic novel world, if you've got some characters that people are interested in, you got you, you never have to worry about money again in your life because they'll just they'll just gobble it up. And there are a ton of amazing artists out there to help you. But I then I you got go to, to have, you gotta go uh, to go to conventions chapter. and meet them, right? <laughs> the Comic Cons. Well, and I don't mind doing that. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you, the, what you have to do, you have to, and this is even if it's outside your comfort zone, is you got to go talk to the people who are buying your stuff. You have yeah. to find out, you have to love on them, and you got to, you have to find out what they want to know, what they want to hear, and and then if it's possible, try and feed that. Right? It's it's like um, if you're running a pizza place and your best customer comes in and you know they like salmon pizza on um, croissant, you know, crust. You better make that. <laughs> right. You know. No more more than more than ever. Getting to know your community, developing your community, and staying connected to your community is important in any work you do. More than ever, and, and there were again. If I look back at the past, that wasn't always the case. Uh, a lot of authors could be very snobby and just like uh, dismissive of their audience in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, but in, in today's world, you just can't do that. You have to stay connected. You have to have some real strong connection to who your audience is. But you, you mentioned kind of writing for them. You know, that's a double-edged sword that I hear different advice on. I hear the advice that you just gave about that. But then, uh, especially in the songwriting part of it, which I assume yeah. it translates over, if you can't you can't work yeah. too hard to try to write for somebody else. You have to please yourself first, I think. I don't know. You know yeah, I mean, if you, if you talk to Carol King or Judy Collins about that, they found the center, right? So there's right. in there, Judy Collins says that all the good songs have been written, but that shouldn't stop you from trying to tell the story a different way. Right. And uh, for Carol King, I mean, when she, when she, when I talked to her about her life, she said that she found that magical spot where she was able to go into um, this zone and create this amazing music that not only uh, resonated with the people who were listening to it, but also touched her heart in a way that, that made it even more powerful. And that's the balancing act, I think, in life, no matter yeah. what you do. I mean, when I, the, the best cops that I know are great psychologists. I mean, they, are, they do not want to take you to jail. They want to try and help you figure out the right way, and they'll go a long way to do it. And, um, you know, we, all we see on television is we see the bad things about everybody. I mean, there you, you see the bad things about the police. No matter what it is, they're always you always maybe it's just the way that TV works. If it bleeds, it leads. They don't, you know, the happy news doesn't get eyeballs. But the reality is that the people who are really good at everything, whether it's hosting an amazing show like what you do or protecting and serving as a cop. It's to be able to do it in a way where you can connect on a very, very powerful and basic level with the people you're there to serve. And if you yeah. can do that, then you can be really successful and you can feel the joy of doing that service, even on the bad days. Right. Uh, I, I I agree with what you said. And, and I when you were talking, especially in the realm of the cop stuff, because I had within days of each other, two completely contrasting experiences i had somebody on this program jeffrey divorce uh, divorce i can't even pronounce his name jeffrey uh <laughs> and he went to jail he was a 16 year old a boy who went to jail for a murder rape and murder he did not commit browbeat into a confession by cops who knew he was innocent uh they knew by his dna that he was innocent by the time the trial came along and and uh squashed that evidence they knew the kid was innocent they were sending him to jail while leaving a real murderer rapist out on the street because they knew they had this innocent kid put him in jail went spent 17 years in jail the judge was in on it and i became extremely jaded 
But then I, I heard the story of one of the detectives who worked on um, the um, the Satanist guy out in um, L.A. Uh, Night Stalker case, and uh, this guy was just such a good basic decent human being and really there to serve and protect and you know was was looking out for the people of the community and this was day, one day to the next day and i thought wow such, such contrasting messages between good and bad so there's yeah. good and bad in, in everybody and people are really complicated but i think you're right we we tend to only focus on the bad stuff and so um it, it it's a complicated wire to walk i guess sometimes but you have to understand there's good and bad in everybody and and uh all that. so uh with the cop stuff though i'm interested in this that wasn't part of your past career in any way so is it just through this this uh, lady tracy that that you knew that brought you into being really interested or tied into that world of uh police work well when i was in when i was in college my shift ended at midnight and as you know, from being on the radio, when you get done, you're still wired. Right. What I would do at midnight is I would go to the local police station because I was a known, you know, media personality and I'd ride with them from midnight until three. Wow. And we would just go do, you know, I would, we'd go to the bars and check IDs. We'd bust drunk drivers. We'd do all that. Kind of, I just, I just was side by side with them. And I did this for two years. And there was a time when I even considered my dad talked me out of it. He says, when you're a cop, you go looking for trouble. But I would, I thought I was, would, when I graduated, I would be take a job in dispatch and try and learn things from the inside out. So I had, I've always had great respect for the law enforcement community. I've seen the good and the bad. There are good ones and bad ones, but you know, you try and vector yourself toward the people that are doing it right and the people you respect and support them. And eventually what happens, as you saw, is that the, the, the bad guys get outed. And the sad thing is that it took this poor kid 17 years that he, of his life before there was any kind of justice. But justice always prevails. You just Sometimes you're not around to see it. That's right. And, and I think at some point, and I know this sounds really, I don't know, uh, cynical. I don't know if it sounds cynical. What it sounds, the, I think there was, Bad things happen to good people for a reason uh, because he went through that. He's a, a martyr in some sense uh, in that because he came out of it. Uh, a law, now he's a lawyer. He got his law degree while behind, you know, studied for law behind bars, come out and got his law degree. Now he's an advocate for uh, people, for false confessions and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and all. so in some sense, you know, I don't know what your religious beliefs or faith and or any of that stuff is, but I think somewhere behind all this, there is meaning in the bad things that happen to us. And sometimes yeah. they all happen for a reason to put us on a path where we can do more good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, the part, as I'm building these characters, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that we're, we all come into the world with our own toolbox, right? So I have, I have a granddaughter who has Down syndrome and that, when you hear that word, you, you think of all the bad stuff associated with it. But what we were told when she was born by other families who have kids with Down syndrome is to have the same expectations, but realize that they're going to get there on the scenic route. They're going to do it in their own way, in their own time. I love that. And <laughs> but that applies to all of us. You know, we, have these, we do have these expectations of you progress through elementary, junior high school, and then 
you know, there's this expectation of college. Why? Why would it? Why should we have this expectation of college? Nobody ever talks about things like what is it that is your purpose? How you know? How can you teach somebody about purpose and passion when they're really young? So I think that what we come with is we come with this toolbox, and then things happen, right? So one of one of my very good friends is a grief counselor in South Central LA, and so she talks every day to children whose parents have OD'd whose parents have been shot and whose parents have, you know, died by violence. And they say to her, how do you expect me to go back to life as it was before? And she says, you can't go back. Things happen. All you can do is look at the tools you have left in your toolbox and build from there. So whatever happens to us along the way, I mean, bad stuff happens to good people and you can either curl up and be a victim. You can be angry. You can be not very, very much fun. Or you can say, what have I got left? How can I continue with what I, what I do have to make a difference, to follow that same passion? And I'm so glad for this guy that that's what he did. He chose to turn this horrible thing into an opportunity to stop the very thing that made the worst thing happen to him in his life, in the lives of others. So I think that's, you know, if, if, if we're living right, bad things are going to happen, but when they do, and I, I think about this, even as we lose loved ones, you know, I've, as, as my parents have passed on, I was very close to both of them. And you wonder, how can you live without those people in your lives? Well, I still, I still feel their hands on my shoulders. I still hear them talking to me and all the stuff they taught me when I was a kid. And they were part of that group that said, you know, you, you do what you can with what you have. Right. And you're not responsible for solving every problem on earth, but you are responsible for contributing to the solution in some way. And that's hopefully I'm doing that with my writing. I don't know. But I, I think uh, part of your calling, and, and maybe you haven't considered this yet, but maybe I'm planting a seed here. I think you should be a motivational speaker. Oh. I, I love your attitude. I am inspired by what you say and um, uh, uplifted uh, from, from my exhaustion that i'm feeling on a day-to-day business you energize me with with your attitude and your outlook on life i appreciate it greatly do people say that to you uh more have you heard that kind of stuff before that i don't know that you there's a motivational there's an inspirational and a very positive outlook in your attitude and the way you approach life well that yeah i mean that's that kind of comes from the radio background right i mean they they expect that you'll have a story to tell and you get invited to do it. And what, what I learned in my days at doing that kind of stuff is that it's the same message. There are the same seven things. You just put a different, you put a different cover on it every year. So, I mean, the, the, I, I used to do this things about the seven things that you're never taught in school. And it's, um, you know, we become what we think about. We become who we hang with. Or we only, we get to take care of your body, get to keep it longer, save half your income. You deserve, you know, to pursue purposeful passion. You know, I had that seven things down and I would change it every year. And it's all stuff we know, right? We know this, but I would continually see people come up to me and say, like what you, like what you said, they would say, wow, man, this, you, you've really opened my eyes here. But it's, it's like cardio. We can never get enough of it. We have to keep filling our cup with those basic little gems of wisdom and remembering why it is we've decided to do this thing we've done. Um, and that's, you know, for me in, in, in my personal life, for the 44 years that I've been with my wife, we have only missed maybe three Wednesdays during that entire time because Wednesday is date night. 
And at five o'clock, all my contracts everywhere, I was gone. Never traveled in the middle of the week. I was gone at five because I was coming home to do the same things I did to win my girl in the first place. Never stopped doing that. God bless you. 44 years, one marriage. I, I, that's an unusual thing, too. So uh, you had a lot of um, unusual things and, and in, in a good way uh, it, that happened in your life. Um, so I had a lady on here, uh, Joyce. Uh, I can't remember Joyce's last name again. I'm, I'm having one of those senior moment type of days. But uh, Joyce wrote a book about how to keep your man. And she's an uh, old school lady, and but uh, she wrote a book about how to keep your man. She's been married, I think, sixty four years. Or wow! Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, forty four years. Congratulations! That's no small feat in this world and, and everything that's going on. Uh, you must be doing something right. You should write a book about how, <laughs> well. how to make marriage work for people who, you know, one of the things that uh, comes up a lot is you know the idea of monogamy, and I think uh, some somehow as a concept, it, it's uh, as a society we kind of treat it like it's an outdated concept. So I'm I'm inspired by seeing people who have been married for forty four years. Congratulations! Well. Uh, Part of the reason that I was attracted to her in the first place, we met while I was still a disc jockey and she was never jealous of me dancing with the people that came up. You know, she never had that jealous bone in her body. And along the way, I've had many, many in, in, in the writing biz, especially in thriller space, there's a lot of women that are my age that do that. So I have, I have a ton of women friends and for some spouses, that would be a challenge, but for us, we know we know that our partnership is the greatest achievement we've ever had. It's the thing we treasure the most. But that doesn't mean that we're not individuals. And that doesn't mean that we can't have appropriate friendship relationships with other people of the opposite sex or same sex or whatever. You know, we can't have meaningful, deep relationships like that. The the thing about it is that that the commitment is there, that at the end of the day, we like to I, my favorite song is Save the Last Dance for Me. Oh, good one. We may go around and around, right? And 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 spend the day with a lot of different people, but I know and 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 part of this may be one of the things that's, that is unique about our relationship is my wife's a two-time ovarian cancer survivor. So we knew, I mean there was a there was a time when we weren't sure whether or not we were going to get to be together for for a long period of time. And once we got that diagnosis, our lives totally changed because every day was a gift. We knew it. We knew nothing was guaranteed. And people talk about that all the time about how we don't have any guarantee of tomorrow. But until you've faced it, until the doctor has told you, this is what you got. And this is the survival rate for people that have ovarian cancer. You, that's a real, that's a, that's a two by four to the side of the head. And what we decided then was that we were not going to, we weren't going to lose a single day, a single moment of opportunity for joy, for feeling everything to its absolute fullest. I mean, the colors, when you realize your own mortality, become brighter. The lows definitely are lower, but the, you know, you can't enjoy the view from the mountaintop unless you know the darkness of the valley. I mean, that's another one of those things that just people talk about all the time. But sometimes you got to walk it. you got to walk that walk. And for, for Colleen and me, it just it just reaffirmed that we made the right decision when we decided to become partners. Wow. Um, very, very uh, uplifting. And, and I'm, <laughs> I'm just really inspired to hear that story. And I know a lot of those things you're saying sound like cliches to people, yeah. but they, they are, uh, they have real meaning. They're cliches because people know, can see the truth in them. 
uh, to a large extent. So I appreciate that. Now, we haven't had much time because uh, <laughs> I, my purpose here today is to expose people to your work and your website and, and all, <laughs> all you do. Uh, going across the bottom, terryshepherd.com. It's in the, the link is in the description, folks. And the latest book is called Chasing Vega. Now, you're working on another book that's coming out in 20. 20- yeah, the, uh, it, it, I'm hoping by mid-June. I just got it back from the the final editor. I got about another week's worth of stuff to do. Um, so, And then I'll put it in the Amazon machine, and it's called Chasing the Captain. It's the second in the Jessica Ramirez trilogy. That'll be coming out in June. In September, I have a book called uh, Students in Time coming out, which is a, a kid's book about that teaches history through time travel. And, uh, oh, it's tied to, I went and talked to my grandson's fourth grade history teacher, and I said, what's your biggest challenge? And she says, I can't get fourth graders excited about Sir Walter Raleigh. So I said, well, what if we took him back and let him interview him in person? You know, so we came up with this whole concept of time travel as a way to study history. And I send my grandson and a, a, another one of his student friends, a female, uh, along with his teacher, through the entire curriculum of the fourth grade history thing, and they experience it in time in person and that's oh. been really fun so that's coming out in september and then we'll see where it goes from there it just depends uh, where the ideas come from i'm gonna have to read that but i'm a, i love time travel stories and and so i'm gonna be reading children's books but uh <laughs> i'll send you one i'll definitely send you one i i definitely i'm i just i've always been uh fascinated with the whole and I, i'm still hoping that somehow it's possible before before i leave this planet to be able to i feel like i was born in the wrong uh generation really like, a lot of people yeah i would love to have been around in the 40s and 50s been a young adult in the late 40s uh-huh. and early 50s the rock, uh-huh. rock and roll the jazz era and right into the rock and roll era i think you know that zoot suit all that stuff would have been right uh, right up my alley I, I just would love to be a young live just to see that <laughs> that era in in real time, real place. And I've always been fascinated with time travel stories. So it sounds like you um, uh, really have a full life with with all you know your wife and grandkids and and, and family and writing uh, completely. So uh, you know with with so much energy and so much enthusiasm. So good for you. You're a great example for people and for writers who uh, at any age are are looking to you know become an author or whatever they're facing obstacles and stuff you're a great inspiration and role model oh, thank, thank you, you very much I, I don't know that i really am but I'm, i am trying to at least understand how i can make the world better than it was when i got here well, that's good for thought. you and good good for all of us and uh we are out of time but i would love it if you come back when your book comes out i mean i'd love to talk to you again i mean i feel like we just tra- scratched the surface here and the hour's gone i want to talk so, rock and roll with you sometime too That'd oh be- sure you know, any any time, and and you know, I think make a plan around when your books come out. But we don't have to keep the the uh, subject uh, tied to the books. So we can talk about them for a little bit, and then talk about whatever you want. Excellent, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure being with you. Today. It's been my extreme pleasure to get to meet you and get to know you. And thank you for coming. And until until we meet again, please stay safe and be well and continue success. Same to you. Bye for now, Terry Shepard, folks. Wow. Uh, I, I came into today's program saying I feel exhausted. I'm leaving saying I feel like running around the block. I feel like I'm, I, I don't know if he's always that way, but 
he infused me with a lot of energy, a lot of inspiration, a lot of motivation to really kick this day's ass and go out and really approach life with a little more zest than I came into this program with. So uh, I appreciate his time here, and I hope you do too. I know we have lots of comments. I'm sorry I did not uh, read your comments to him and questions to him. Maybe next time, uh, just got very interested and listened to what he had to say and not paying attention to the comments. I apologize for that. Next time, we'll try to get more of your comments in. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed this program. I hope you check out his website and his books and can, and his podcast and uh, and support him in, in, in the things that he's doing to make this world a better place. And hopefully, he's uh, lit a fire, opened a window, kind of sparked an idea for you on uh, what you can do to uh, make the world a better place for you for us yourself and and take uh take it upon yourself so great program today hope you enjoyed it till tonight i have another really interesting guy tonight on john de la fever i believe that's his name do i have his name correctly i'm having senior moments with the names today folks uh john de la fever now john is a guy who was been rich and poor uh went to jail for some kind of um uh investment scheme or something like that but uh had an epiphany in in jail about the true meaning of life there was a musician author and uh activist uh, for a lot of different causes it has totally changed his life around really interesting guy john d lafever 8 p.m tonight hope you meet me here then till then i'm matt napple for the mind bug tv podcast have a great rest of your day go kick the day's ass i'm gonna bye for now
listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. 